Hi, and welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. This is a sermon from our How to Be series, where we look to the book of Psalms to teach us spiritual habits and postures to live more deep and meaning-filled lives. All right. Welcome. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for worship today here at Dwell. We are going through a series we are calling How to Be, and I guess I've just stacked everything in front of the TV screen. Sorry about that. We're going through a series called How to Be. Thanks, Josh. And it is a series through uh, the book of Psalms all summer long, uh, just sort of uh, going through different spiritual habits and practices that can help us grow closer uh, to Jesus, uh, getting a more intimate relationship with him, uh, grow more in connection to him. And so uh, I'm glad that you guys are here to join uh, with us in that this Sunday. And so today we're talking about humility. You may not necessarily think of humility as a spiritual discipline or spiritual practice or something like that. But I believe that humility is actually sort of like the root, the, the core central idea by which all of the other spiritual practices and habits are uh, accessed. And so I think God has some really good stuff for us today. I'm going to read the passage again, and I want you just to listen really closely. I'm going to read it through another version. Uh, there's a version of the Bible called the Message Bible. It was uh, translated or paraphrased, really, by this guy named Eugene Peterson. And uh, for him, I actually had a quote for him uh, last week. He said that he thinks that in our sort of like doing and getting kind of world, the Psalms are actually the best tools that we have to learn how to actually be and become. And so he translated the entire Bible. He also translated uh, the book of Psalms through that. And so we're actually going to start by rereading our passage, the same one that that Lauren read earlier uh, in the book or in the message translation. He says, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. I have kept my feet on the ground. I've cultivated a quiet heart like a baby content in its mother arms. My soul is a baby content. Wait, Israel, for God. Wait with hope. Hope now. Hope always. This is probably the simplest psalm that we will read all summer long. Basically breaks down into three parts. He opens by saying that he has kept his feet on the ground. He knows where he stands. He's not thinking about things too wonderful or too marvelous for him. It moves on to this idea that the result of that is that he is baby content, like a baby content in its mother's arms. And that because of that, Israel should then wait and hope in the Lord. Now, is that not just the most amazing imagery that you can think of? Like, picture being, like, completely, absolutely content. What is more content than a baby in its mother's arms, right? you got this little chunk of, like, fat and rolls, and it's laying there in its mother's arms, picturing, like, you know, the little jowls kind of moving slightly, kind of doing that, like, bulldog breathing that babies do. You know, you can kind of, like, hear it from across the room. They're really kind of nasty the way that I'm describing it, but they're actually, like, ridiculously cute, and that's the weird thing. They do that weird thing where the eye is open, but they're not really seeing anything. That's like true sleep right there. Like, you really cannot get any better than that moment. I sometimes wish that they would make, like, adult, you know, pillows shaped like mom's arms or something, but I imagine that'd be, like, super creepy because it'd have to be huge, right? That's the other aspect is that you're holding this little baby, and they are just so ridiculously content and satisfied in their mother's arms. And I think 
you know, given sort of the intro to this text, given the, the first part where he's talking about knowing where he stands, not thinking of things too wonderful for him, not, not meddling in things that aren't his business, it seems to me that the result of that, and the only way to really achieve this baby contentment is to have that type of humility, is to sort of know where you stand with the world. I'm sorry, there's a balloon flying around in here. It's the most distracting thing I've ever seen in my life. You guys are, I'm going to lose it like six times during this sermon. That is so bizarre. All right. Anyway, <clears throat> I apologize in advance. Better preachers would just move right on. I cannot. <clears throat> wow. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this baby, it's, this, uh, the result of this humility is actually that baby contentment. And I know in my life I never feel that sort of like content that content with who I am, that content with my place in life, that content with what I've been given, with what I have and what I don't have. I would never describe my sort of relationship to the world and my place in it as being this baby content. And I think the reason for that is because I don't have that same sort of understanding of my place in the world, which is really what hu humility is. And in fact, the working definition that we're going to use today is that humility is knowing your rightful place before God and in the universe. That's how we achieve this baby contentment. It's knowing our rightful place before God and the universe. In fact, that's exactly how the psalm breaks down. Remember, he says he knows where he stands. He's not trying to be somewhere where he's not. And because of that, his soul is baby content within him. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today is how we might sort of access that baby content likeness for our souls. So uh, we actually see this throughout the life of Jesus and his followers, uh, that humility was kind of a marker of this Jesus movement from the earliest possible moments. So from the very beginning, Jesus and his followers were actually marked by not saying that they were better than they were or not trying to sort of like climb above each other and show how powerful and amazing they were. No, when people started following Jesus and when the early church was popping up, people were clamoring over one another to show how uh, humble they were, how much lesser they were. We actually see this uh, first in John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, if you remember back from when we were going through John a few months ago, or I guess it was only three weeks ago, but a couple months ago when we were talking about John the Baptist, uh, we see this in John chapter three. Jesus comes on the scene, right? He is here in town. John the Baptist was like this celebrity kind of figure. And then Jesus shows up, and this is what he says. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So you have this sort of like guy, he's like sort of like a celebrity preacher at the time, and he's gained a little bit of this following, and people are trusting and going after him and showing up to see him preach out in the wilderness. And he says, as soon as Jesus steps on the scene, he says, now my good and proper response to Jesus showing up is that I must decrease and he must increase. We see this in the life of Paul, maybe the uh, most influential Christian of all time. He writes a letter uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
From the very earliest days, this movement of God that we call the church was marked by someone, right? Maybe the most influential Christian in all of history who wants to let you know as he's writing this letter to Timothy that he is actually the foremost of sinners. So he's not writing this letter to Timothy to let him know how good he thinks he is. He's not writing this letter to Timothy to impress him. He's saying, actually, I am the worst of all sinners. Here's what's really interesting, too. He doesn't say, I was the worst of all sinners, like back in my old life before I was following Jesus. He says, I am the foremost of sinners. If you've ever talked to somebody who's like really spiritually attuned, really connected in with Jesus, you'll find that they're much more apt to talk about their faults than their successes. In fact, I'm reading uh, uh, sort of devotionally through this book by Thomas Sekampis, and he says uh, that the truly sort of spiritually attuned person, the person who's following Jesus with all that they have, when someone brings a criticism against them, they don't take it personally because they know that they have done so much worse. They actually know that they have done so much worse than anything that anybody else could bring upon them. And so it becomes less and less offensive to know that you've actually sinned worse than whatever somebody else is bringing upon you. Paul says something kind of similar, but a little bit different in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. So one of uh, the 12 sort of leaders of the church. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me, it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God is with me. We see two things right here in this passage. It says, he says, I am the least of the apostles. He wants you to know that if there's a ranking of these important, holy and spiritual men, he is going to be at the bottom of them. And then we actually see sort of a progressive kind of thing here where he's almost like learning even as he's speaking, because he says, on the contrary, I actually worked really hard. And then almost as if it's like sort of echoing from the back of his mind, he catches himself and he says, yeah, I did work hard, but it was not me. It was the grace of God that is in me. You see, for Paul on his journey, getting to know Christ, becoming more intimate with Christ, he didn't become consciously more and more aware of how good he was and all the great things that he was doing for Jesus and all, how amazing it was that this movement was taking part and he, or taking hold and he was a part of it. No, instead he became more and more aware of the grace of God in his life and his deep need for it. His closeness with Jesus led him to call himself the least of the apostles and sort of attribute every single thing that he succeeded in life to the grace of Jesus. And it makes sense that these followers of Jesus uh, would be marked by sort of radical, sort of countercultural humility because their very Savior Jesus was as well. See this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Uh, Jesus is speaking about himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Even Jesus, savior of the universe, leader of this movement of God, describes himself as lowly in heart. He is letting you know he's not trying to sort of like assert his position, though he is the right and true ruler of the universe. And it also happened in his teaching, too. He was teaching his disciples not to be uh, thinking themselves more highly than they are. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
We've been talking about this a lot over the past years. We've been going through the book of John and looking at this sort of bizarro universe that Jesus is putting forward, where the first become last, where the least among us are actually the greatest among us in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes to show that the world, uh, that their sort of structures for what is great and what is uh, meek, what is mild and lowly in heart are actually the most important things. And he does this through his very life. What, what could possibly be more humble than the incarnation of Jesus, which is when he comes to live on earth with us, when he came as a little baby, the most frail and sort of insignificant in some sort of like insignificant town across the world, this tiny little baby shows up. That has to be the ultimate humility to be at one moment God of the entire universe, creator and sustainer of everything that is and was and shall ever be, and then to put all of that fullness into this tiny frail, defenseless child. The cross then becomes the ultimate act of humility. To climb up on a cross, though you have lived a perfect life, and take punishment for people who have lived drastically imperfect life. In fact, people who have actually rebelled against you, rebelled against the very good gifts and things that you have given to them. For those people to be able to just hop up on a cross and take that punishment on yourself, that's the ultimate in humility. That is the absolute highest mark of humility that we can possibly see. Andrew Murray, who uh, literally wrote the book on humility, it's called Humility, so we can actually say that. Uh, he says this. He says that uh, for Jesus, his humility is our salvation, and his salvation is our humility. His humility for dying on the cross is our salvation. And because of that, his salvation then becomes our humility, knowing that we need to humble ourselves to even be able to accept and appreciate this salvation. But even though we saw that John had it, even though we saw that Paul had it, even though we saw that Jesus himself embodied this idea of humility, still, I find in my own life, it's very, very difficult to cultivate. It's something that I have a lot of trouble being able uh, to embody in myself. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Uh, we are sinful people. We are broken, uh, messed up people who constantly find ways to do things that are against God's goodwill, which is basically what sin is. I know it sounds like sort of a fancy or intimidating word, but basically is anything against God's good and right plan for the universe. The very first act uh, of sin was actually committed by Adam and Eve, and pride was at the very root of that. Uh, the, the deceiver comes along and says to Eve, hey, uh, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be as important? Do you want to know all the things? Do you want all this power and control? And Eve says, yes, they sign on board out of their very pride to try and be like God. And as such, pride then ends up being at the root of every possible sin that we could do. Think about sins against God, right? Things that you would do uh, against God's goodwill against him, right? Uh, you know, we get mad because we think that we should, like, you know, have certain things. And we tell God, hey, God, I believe that I deserve this and you have not given it to me. That's an act of pride to think that you know better than God does for what is good for you at a certain time. We get uh, frustrated sometimes because we don't have control over something. That's an act of pride 
pride thinking that you should be in control of something that God is in control of. Uh, maybe we get uh, frustrated or, or maybe even like we're not super like uh, faithful with what God has given us. And so we're like saying, God, we need more things. We want this thing. We, we're going to need this to be happy. And ultimately that boils down to this very simple act of pride to think that you know best, even better than the creator of the universe and you for what is going to make you happy. Every single sin that you can commit against another person is also an act of pride. Think about taking something from someone else. At its root, that's an idea to say that, like, uh, I am worth more. I need this because my life is worth more than your life. Think about speaking ill of someone, speaking poorly of someone. Is that not just an act and sort of saying, like, I'm going to make myself feel better at your expense because you're not as valuable as I am? And sinning against our fellow human beings, we're actually saying my time is more valuable. I am a better person. I have more power. I have more worth in this world than you do. And to make matters worse than that just being our sort of natural bent, we're actually pushed towards this self-belief in our society today. Tim Keller says that the ancients believed uh, that back in the day, hubris was sort of like the sin that led to all of your downfall. And hubris is sort of like this fatal pride that makes you think more highly than you should. Today, we're actually encouraged in exactly the opposite. So uh, I follow a lot of like entrepreneur blogs and stuff like that, since this is kind of entrepreneur-ish. And so uh, a lot of them, if you read enough of them, you can start buying into this very simple idea that like if you believe in yourself enough, then you can actually achieve whatever your business is going to be. That if you can just think so highly of yourself uh, and portray that confidence and that strength to the world, then your business is sort of like guaranteed to succeed. I don't think that can be true. It definitely can't be true in church work uh, because I feel like I've tried it. I have tried to will into existence this like, you know, beautiful, wonderful church. And instead, God gave me you guys. No, I'm just kidding. That sounded really offensive. Uh, Instead, uh, I have learned that, in fact, I have no power to build any of this out of myself. And in fact, I, I hate that, that you guys might be casualties of me having to learn something like this, but instead, like, our, like, very process being here over the past three years has been a constant sort of, like, learning that no matter what kind of cleverness I can bring to the table, no matter what kind of, like, amazing preaching or amazing, amazing leading that I can sort of, like, foster in and of myself, ultimately, I'm not even in control as to whether or not this church lives or dies, in fact, many things that are terrible that have happened to this church in our you know, existence are because of me, and almost, well, really everything that has been good that has happened has been because of God. I'm not sure if this has been the most humbling or most humiliating season of my life, but either way, I am seeing myself now in a better position in relation to God because I am realizing that I am not in control of the universe, and I am definitely not in control of this church. Think of the times when you've really, really, really messed up. Uh, Maybe you've broken a relationship. Maybe you've, like, messed up at a job. Uh, Maybe you have uh, offended someone really badly. Maybe you have uh, ruined something something uh, by something that you did. Maybe you've, like, ruined something that was going well. And think back to sort of, like, the root of what led you to do that. I think if you're willing to sort of like chew on that long enough, if you're willing to sort of like do the excavation work to get down to the bottom of it, pride is going to be at the heart. 
of whatever that sort of failure, whatever that sort of uh, brokenness that you created is. Pride is at the heart of all of the, the problems and all of the ills in our lives. And Andrew Murray actually says that the only way for us to be able to live with God, the only way for us to be able to live in humility is by killing that pride. He says this, pride may die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. I actually, uh, well, I feel like that leads to this question then. So how are we supposed to live? So if we kill all this pride, if we get rid of all this pride, then where does that leave us, right? We know that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. Hopefully we've gotten there at this point in the sermon. So then it's like, okay, so do we need to just be self-loathing, self-pitying kind of creatures? And all of the counselors in the room are like freaking out. I can see it on their face. They hate that I would even suggest that. And I'm really not. I'm not saying that the alternative is that we just absolutely hate ourselves. That can't be the solution either, right? And in fact, uh, I think a lot of times even self-hatred leads to just as many problems as being like sort of self-aggrandizing or making yourself greater than you think that you ought to be. So there has to be another way, right? The way in which we are ought to, we ought to live. And uh, I used to coach soccer. I actually started uh, yesterday coaching Evie's soccer team. I learned that uh, coaching three-year-old and coaching nine-year-old soccer are completely different. Uh, three-year-old soccer is built solely for Instagram, I think. Like three-year-olds should not be playing soccer, nor do they want to, nor do they follow instructions. But it is cute as I'll get out to see them wear shin guards that are like, you know, the size of like uh, cell phones, right? So uh, it was ridiculously cute. Back when I used to coach soccer with nine-year-olds, true athletes, you know, sort of semi-professionals, back in those days, uh, I got in and like a new crop of kids, and uh, there were two kids that I really uh, did not like. If that's, can you say that? Okay. I was probably not the best coach, but I didn't like these two kids, okay? So uh, the first kid was the kid who thought he was the best on the team. That kid was always going to just be the worst, even if they were the best on the team. If they knew it, it was always going to lead to bad things. They were going to be a ball hog. They were going to ruin things on the, on the field and stuff like that. It was just going to be awful. We were not going to be friends. Uh, the other kid that I did not enjoy coaching so much was the kid that thought he was the worst on the team. And that's because uh, this kid would walk into every situation with so little confidence, so much expectation that he was going to fail that then he would inevitably fail, right? You know, two people are going up for a ball, a free ball that's out there in the open, and he's running up to the ball, and he's assuming that the other person is going to be faster than him, going to have better foot skills, and that he is going to miss the ball and embarrass himself. And basically that incapacitates him to where he's not able to do anything. Who I loved, conversely was anybody else sort of like living in the middle, living between these two poles. Because what would inevitably sort of be defining of those middle group of kids who are a part of the team is that they were so happy to be there, so happy to just be a part of the team that they really didn't even necessarily care where they ranked. Nine-year-old is kind of like a sweet spot for that, right? Like everybody kind of like, you'd like to be the best. You kind of feel it when you're the worst, but there's no sort of like ranking in the middle. You're never thinking like, I'm the most medium most player. No, you're not thinking at all about where you stand. Instead, you are thinking about yourself as a member of the team, as sort of like a part of the group. And as a part of that, your individual identity I would see this with kids. They're sort of like individuality, what I want to achieve, what I want to do here, would sort of fall away when things were happening really well, you know? 
they'd be out there on the team out on the field they wouldn't be frustrated about what position they have to play because they would know that their position is where they were put and it's where they're supposed to be they wouldn't be frustrated when they don't have the ball because they would know that their team is sort of working and their chance will come and everything like that that was the sort of like true sublime placement that i was like craving as a coach that i wanted out of everyone And it wasn't thinking too highly of self. It wasn't thinking too lowly of self. In fact, it was actually forgetting self for just the briefest of moments. And I think that that's actually what humility is. In fact, I think the solution is not thinking more highly or lowly of yourself, thinking more or less of yourself, but in thinking of yourself less. Okay, I know that's kind of a confusing and kitschy phrase, but the solution is not in thinking more or less of yourself, but in thinking of yourself less. This idea actually comes from Tim Keller's book, and uh, I shared with you guys that I'm going to be sharing a book every uh, Sunday through this summer series. So this is uh, a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. Uh, I would highly recommend it because it is crazy short. If you can't read this, then uh, I will help you and get you an audiobook or something like that. I was about to say like something mean, but that's not what I should say. Uh, you should be able to read this book. It's really good. And uh, like I said, audiobooks are out there. I will read it to you, right? It would just take like an hour. It's amazing. Uh, we actually have it in our welcome boxes. So if you've never taken a welcome box, uh, take one of these and uh, you will uh, definitely benefit from this book. He talks about this idea called self-forgetfulness. And he shows through the life of Paul how that is actually the solution to a lot of the challenges and problems that we have with uh, humility. This baby contentness contentness, the satisfaction in its mother's arms actually comes more from thinking less often, thinking less of ourselves and forgetting ourselves in that moment. And in that time, we forget ourselves and the sort of like trade-off that we make is no longer thinking of ourselves and trying to rank ourselves and trying to put ourselves in some sort of placement and how high and low, but instead thinking of ourselves as actual children of God as beloved uh, people that God loves, beloved of God. That's the trade-off. You see, pride says that you've got to find out where you rank. You've got to find out uh, where you fall in the scheme, and you've got to always be trying to climb higher, try and make yourself better, try and make yourself more loved, more valuable, more important, something like that. But self-forgetfulness says that you are already loved by the God of the universe. You can't achieve any more of his love. You can't gain any more. And you can never lose his love either. And that leads to true freedom. You see, the self-forgetful person will not be hurt as badly when criticism comes. Because that criticism says that you are not worthy, you are not as good, but the self-forgetful person knows that God thinks that they're good already. God thinks that they're worthy. The self-forgetful person will not have to fight to have value or love because the self-forgetful person knows that God values them already, implicitly in who God is, not in who they are. The self-forgetful person will find in God all of their existence, all of their hope, all of their joy, all of their satisfaction, all of that baby-like contentment because they know that it comes from God not from anything that they can conjure within themselves. Really, the heart of the gospel is found in this idea. 
In fact, I would even go so far to say that it's very, very difficult to accept the free gift that Jesus has given to us if we're not able to forget ourselves. In that very moment, the crucial act of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and us actually accepting that gift that he has given to us, we have to say, God, it is not me who is important. It is not me who is the most valuable. It's not anything that I can do, but it is everything that you have brought to the table. And that might be the most humbling thing of all, to have to go to Jesus who has given you this great gift and say, God, I'm bringing nothing to this transaction. I have nothing to give to you in order for you to give me everything in the universe that I need that can actually bring me satisfaction and eternal life with you. And I bring absolutely nothing to the table. Indeed, our very first act of following Jesus, our very first act of becoming a believer is one of absolute humility. And so, as such, our lives, our joy with Jesus, our, our baby-like contentment is found in continually humbling ourselves, forgetting ourselves before the Savior. I don't have any data to back this up. I don't have any sort of even like clear or clever story. I just know that my walk with Jesus and especially in tapping into deep and intimate times with him has been one of constant growing humility. I know that pride seems to be the enemy that gets in between my relationship with Jesus, that gets in between Jesus and I. And humility seems to be the thing that sort of unlocks the door into getting to know him better, being able to follow and trust him more with my life. I hope that for you, my prayer is going to be that for you this week, that you might find Jesus through humility. And my prayer is still for me as well. That's sort of the, the, the difficult part about humility. You really think that you have humbled yourself as much as you can until you find something else that you are secretly prideful about or even being prideful about being that humble. Who knows, right? That's sort of the, the cyclical nature of it. And yet, that's the path to this contentment. So here's what I'm going to do uh, as we close. I'm actually going to pray Psalm 30, 131 uh, over you. The Psalms, as I mentioned uh, last time, are actually tools uh, that the that Christians and uh, believers in God have used for years as tools for worship, as tools for uh, ways in which that we might draw closer to God. And so uh, I want to use this as our prayer as we close uh, out this sermon time. So uh, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? <clears throat> o Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Following Jesus can be tough. 
Luckily, Jesus gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us on a Sunday or in one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.